want to approach a, something that I don't think I've probably talked about before, but, but Christmas carries a sword with it. And that seems kind of odd to us to think about Christmas carrying a sword because of all the cheer. But when I listen to a high percentage of the Christmas songs, you notice the, the melancholy kind of tune to a lot of the Christmas songs? No, not all of them. I, and I'm talking about Christian hymns. I'm not talking about Rudolph and Frosty and all that, but the, the Christian hymns that were written. And there's some, you know, joyful ones too, like uh, Hark the Herald the Angels Sing, but so many of them have this, this melancholy kind of solemn, sorrowful flow through them. Uh, and they kind of seem to bleed together this, this sorrow and this joy mixed together. Even the last one we heard, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, uh, it finally breaks into rejoice, rejoice. But if you can sing it in your head, it doesn't sound very joyful, does it? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. It still has that kind of that rhythm to it. And I thought about that. I thought, what these people that wrote these Christmas Christian hymns were very devout believers who loved Jesus. And they also were very learned in the word. And so they know something's going on here. And they're kind of bleeding in that that sorrow and solemnness and that joy all together. And they, you can get a good Bible teaching from good, solid Christian hymns because they contain biblical truth, a lot of biblical truth. In fact, maybe some of you know this, but there is an erroneous, a, a false doctrine out there that Jesus was simply a man, simply a human being, just a guy like me or you. He's just a man, but he was the first guy who got it right. He lived an entire life sinless. And because he lived an entire life sinless and holy, he got promoted to godhood. Now, I do want you to know, the Bible does not teach that. But that is a theory among some people. And I thought even the great Christmas hymn writer, Silent Night, will, I think it's like the second verse, it ends with um, Jesus... Lord, capital L, Jesus Lord at thy birth. Did you catch that? Jesus Lord at thy birth. Not Jesus Lord after you executed everything and did everything flawlessly, then you got promoted to that. He was born Lord, capital L. You say, where do we get that from? From the Bible. The Gospel of John chapter 1 tells that clearly. Also he said, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not a kind of like a God. No, God with us. God would wrap himself in a human body and would come to earth to save our souls and our lives. So, today I want to talk about Jesus' birth, the two-edged sword. There's a serious reflection on the coming of our Savior and this interchange that took place with a, uh, a religious leader, Simeon, on the eighth day when Jesus was taken to the temple for circumcision and to be blessed. Simeon, it's found in Luke chapter 2. Simeon was a guy who loved God, had studied the word. He knew what the scripture said. Through the the Hebrew scriptures, I want you to know this, Simeon did not have the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, Philippians, Colossians. He didn't have what we call the New Testament. He had the Hebrew scriptures. And these Hebrew scriptures, he had studied them, and he knew there was a Messiah coming a savior of the world. And the Holy Spirit told him, you'll read this in Luke chapter 2, the Holy Spirit told him 
you are not going to taste death until your eyes see that Messiah. Well, Simeon one day, this is what it appears like to me as you read it in Luke chapter 2, that Simeon's gone around the temple doing his duties. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, head out to the temple courts. He walks out into the temple courts and he sees Joseph and Mary and eight-day-old baby Jesus and he begins to say, oh my goodness. He said, Lord, you have fulfilled your word to me for my eyes have seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, Joseph and Mary is hearing all this too and it says, you can send your servant home in peace. I, ah, I've seen the Messiah. And says, Joseph and Mary are kind of marveling, like, what's this all about? And then we'll pick up on the story today. Then Simeon, Luke 2, 34 and 35, then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to what? And many others to rise. Christmas is a two-edged sword. Many will rise, many will fall. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. I I don't want us to be confused that Jesus is harmless. Now, he's not harmful in a bad way, but he's not this sanitized version of Jesus that the culture always, and not just today's culture. You notice how we always pick on today's culture. It's funny how we're like that. Like, whatever the current generational thing is, what, what is the current thing? Is it, are, are we on Zs or Xs or generation what? It doesn't matter what the generation is. The generation before it says, this generation's worthless. Okay, well, that's what they said about you and me too, okay? But I say that's not so. God has a mighty army in every generation who loves God, is doing exciting things for God, and it'd be good if us old people would quit telling the young people, you guys are worthless, because none of us are worthless, and God is on the move in the hearts of young people all the way from preschool on up, and so God's on the move. He's working. He's doing things in our midst, and he's not harmless, though. The culture always wants to sanitize Jesus. Now, what happens is, and we got to be careful because we'll want to do this, too, So as you start picking on other people, look at your own heart too. Because we want to say, I want to create a Jesus that makes me comfortable. But Jesus doesn't always make people comfortable. We're going to see that in the story here. He doesn't always make people comfortable. There's a a neat interchange in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that book written by C.S. Lewis. And and uh, Susan and Lucy and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Has anybody here ever read the, the book or watched the, the show on that? Raise your hand up high. Okay. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't seen that, you need to see it. It's, it's, it's amazing. It all pointing us to Jesus and the salvation and gospel. Well, the gang, Susan, Lucy, they're, they're about to meet Aslan. Now, Aslan represents Jesus in the story. They're about to meet Aslan, and they don't even know who Aslan is. And... So then they find out Aslan's a lion. And like Susan's like, oh my goodness, I thought Aslan was a man. He's a lion? I should be very nervous to meet a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, well, I would think so, dearie. You know, anyone who can meet Aslan and their knees aren't knocking, uh, she says, is is braver than most or just plain silly. 
And so they're confused about this, and then Lucy says, then he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king. Wow. So Jesus isn't safe. Now, I, I want to make sure we understand that. Uh, he's not unsafe in a bad way. He's just not safe and sanitized and domesticated like we like our saviors to be. We will change them so oh, we can be very comfortable being ourselves. I remember someone told me one time, they said, I think about becoming, I think about joining this particular religion. And I said, why? And they said, because they believe more like I believe. Well, there's the problem. Because Jesus comes and says, I need you to believe like I believe, Jesus says. And so now I have to do some adjusting to line up with Jesus. So, he isn't safe, but he's good. He isn't safe, but he's the king. So this Christmas season, I want us to see that Jesus oftentimes, at first, is a great divider before he's a great uniter. And so we'll look at that. These words come from the mouth of Jesus, Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Jesus said, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. There's an exclamation point there, so he's saying it with some, some vigor there. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy to be mine. Or if you love your son and daughter more than me, you're not worthy to be mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Now, if you're like me, you might read that and say, wow, what is that about? I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. And so the Bible says Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And then we have the Prince of Peace saying, don't think that I came to bring peace. So what's going on? This is why it's so important that we be discipled in the scriptures. And, and because there's this whole counsel of God, it's understanding all of what's being said, which is not weird. It's, it's true of even conversations you have with people. Sometimes people say, I need the whole conversation. For, for instance, this happened many, many years ago. I was counseling with a, uh, a gentleman, and, and he was going on and on about everything wrong in his marriage. And I was telling him, that's wrong. Your behavior is unacceptable. This is not the way you should do. And I'm going through all this. At some point in there, I said, okay, okay, I get it. I can understand why you feel like you feel, but you've got to change this. Now, do you know what part of our entire conversation he told his wife? Pastor Tracy says he knows why I feel like I feel. And I said, wow, it would be nice if we had the whole counsel of God there instead of, instead of just that little slither, but we're all kind of good at doing that. So we've got to look at the whole counsel of God. Well, over there in the Founders Chapel Cafe, every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., they're going through the book of Matthew. They've already covered Matthew 10 and those hard, those hard uh, words from Jesus. But had you been in there... You could have looked at that and divided that and asked questions and took some time to digest it. So I want to encourage you, find that place, and we're going to help create those in the new year, places where we can be discipled. 
In fact, there's a men's thing coming up here in the first of the year that Tyler's going to lead, and I don't think we've got a sign-up sheet out yet, but there's little cards on the back of your chairs. You can take one of those and write, I want to be part of the men's group or men's group. Put your name on there, leave it in the chair, and we'll help compile a list of people so we can get the materials for everyone that wants to attend. We need to be discipled in the things of God. I had a person tell me one time that they believed that there were life on other planets and there were aliens. Now, I don't care whether there is or isn't, but I asked the question because I'm always curious, where did you get that information? And he said, from the Bible. I said, okay, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Where, did, where is that in the Bible? They said, Jesus said, I have sheep that you know not of. Now, the Bible calls Jesus the good shepherd. Those who follow him are often referred to as sheep. So the good shepherd and sheep. And so I said, so what he thought in his own mind, without really knowing the word, is that all of us on planet Earth would qualify as sheep, but if he has other sheep we don't know about, then that must be aliens on other planets. I said, okay. What it means is this. Jesus was talking to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders could not fathom that anybody but them that anybody but them would be part of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus looks at them and says, basically this, I have sheep that you can't even fathom or consider in your mind. Who are these sheep? We are, the Gentiles. There's a, there, there's a whole bunch of non-Jewish people who you're not even considering that they will be sheep. There will be people who will follow me. It really wasn't a verse about life on other planets. I mean, I don't care what you think about that. It's not for it or against it. I'm just telling you that I know this. That's not what that Bible verse was about. So we need to learn God's word. We need to, have, we need to solidly know God's word. And a lot of times people get information about God's word from people who don't even like God and don't even know God and don't really even know his word. But they say, well, the Bible and God this and God that. You don't even like God. You don't even know God. You don't even know your Bible. But that's where the source becomes. So we need to go get good training from the word of God. So here Jesus is saying, if you love someone something more than me, even your own life, you're not worthy of me. So what's he talking about? Well, it shows that there's two sides of this sword of, of Christ. That not, it's not always nice, kind, little soft words. In fact, Jesus taught so hard at times that they left him in crowds. I know that you know they came to him in mass groups, but they also left him one time in mass groups. And he looked at his disciples and said, do you want to leave too? And they said, where else can we go and get the words of life? And so not everything he said was warm and fuzzy. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, man, I couldn't wait to get here so I could just be a big troublemaker. I mean, I love it when dads and sons fight. I love it when moms and daughters don't get along. I love it when there's re relational chaos and everything's awful. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is this. There is a life past this life, an eternal life, and it's found only in me. That's what Jesus is telling us. So when you decide that you're going to be a Jesus follower, not everyone will celebrate you. Now, we live in the Bible Belt. Many of you would read a verse like this and say, I never found that to be true in my life. It didn't say it would be true in everybody's life. We live in the Bible Belt. You, you might have experienced this. Um, hopefully you did. 
I had parents that loved the Lord. Brothers that were raised in church loved the Lord. Had grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and cousins that loved the Lord. And even the handful that didn't love the Lord still had a respect for God, the scriptures, and church. So there wasn't a lot of, of bickering going on, but not everybody was raised in that. One time there was a person from this church that came with me and Darlene to one of her family gatherings. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Darlene is one of 15 children, okay? So family gatherings are pretty big. I'm not even sure I've met all the family yet, and we've been married for decades. So there's all these people that were gathering, and there was one brother who's a super good guy, but he had never yielded his life to Christ. And everybody's just talking to him about the Lord. They're not being mean to him, but they're talking to him about the Lord and how the Lord could change his life and all that. When we left, this person that came with us said, wow, I looked at that and marveled at that because my family relations are the exact opposite. I'm the only one that loves the Lord in my group right now, my family, and if I talk about the Lord, it's, I get ganged up on by everybody about how ridiculous and foolish and crazy that being a Christian is and loving Jesus is and on and on and on, so he saw the opposite of that. Now, maybe you were raised in a family like him. Well, then you look at these verses and you say, yeah, I see exactly what you're talking about. Some of your enemies will be your own family members. So, there is this certain spiritual battle that goes on because I'll tell you this, Satan hates Christians. Uh, Let me back up and say this. Satan hates people. See, it's the good thing about our God. You know our God loves everyone. He loves the vile, wicked sinner who curses him. I read a little excerpt from an atheist who really hates God. Well, God he says he doesn't believe in. And when he was done writing about how awful God is, I actually wept. I mean that because it broke my heart to think somebody could speak like that about my God who is so awesome and so amazing. And guess what? Jesus loves him passionately, unlike the devil who hates everybody. You say, well, he doesn't hate Satan worshipers. Yeah, he does. He hates them too. He hates everybody. We're made in the image of God. He hates that. And so there is a certain warfare that goes on. Uh, By the way, I want you to know, we've already won. The scripture clearly says that the Satan is defeated, but there is this battle that tends to go on, these little skirmishes as we grow in the Lord. So Jesus begins to teach people that, hey, He tells his followers, you know, watch how they treat me. And if you watch how they treat me, don't think it odd if they treat you the same way. Did you know that Jesus would get screamed at and railed at and yelled at and and called all kinds of names for his, what he said and what he did? Now, he also was very loved and praised by people too, but it was a two-edged sword. There was both sides of it going on. And one time the religious leaders are so angry with Jesus that they say they're going to kill him and they're not even keeping it secret anymore. And Jesus even asked him, said, let me ask you this, for what act of kindness do you wish to kill me? I mean, was it for, you know, raising your buddy Jairus' daughter from the dead? Was it for curing ten lepers? Was it for the one with the issue of blood, the our dear sister who was bent over for 18 years by Satan that I delivered. For which act of kindness do you wish to kill me? And they said, we don't wish to kill you for any of those acts of kindness. We wish to kill you because you being a mere man claim to be God. 
That's not a wise claim unless you are. They understood what Jesus was saying, that he was God wrapped in a human body. So they yelled at him. Even his family, you'll find this in, in Mark 3, if you like to look things up, jot down Mark 3, 20, 21. Even his family said, uh, hey, tell Jesus that his mother and brothers are out here because we want to come get him. Why did they want to come get him? Because they said, he's gone crazy. He's beside himself. He, he's gone over the deep end. and We need to just whisk him out of this crowd before he embarrasses himself or us anymore. Now, I just noticed that verse is up there. Darlene said the other day, you said in your sermon that you didn't have this verse, but the verse popped up there. I said, because they're getting good back there at the back. They just popped it up there for me. So if I say the verse isn't there, it means I don't have it, but that doesn't mean it won't come up there. But the, the scripture, even his own family was saying, I think he's gone overboard here. So, I want you to know this, that Jesus makes clear in his teachings that following him isn't always the easy road. I mean, again, we are in the Bible Belt. We, we may not know the stress and the, the angst that other people have. There are people in prison right now on other sides of the globe and have been there for years simply because of their profession of Jesus. There are people in other countries that, and of different religions that if you give your life to Jesus, you are alienated from the family. There are certain places on planet Earth that it doesn't matter how brilliant you are and what position you held in, in medicine or science or education or government. If you come to know Jesus as a Savior, you'll lose all that and you'll have a hard time even getting a job doing anything. So that persecution does still go on around the world. We Christians are kind of funny and because we are in the Bible Belt and here, you, you ought to hear, like we'll say, I'm just suffering for Jesus. Why? At work, somebody called me a religious nut. Okay, well, there's people in prison, okay? Some people getting their heads cut off for their testimony of Jesus. So I think you'll be okay that they think you're a Bible thumper because you love Jesus. So Jesus goes on to talk in Matthew 21. He says, have you ever read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected? has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's specifically talking to Jewish people who won't submit to his lordship and be given to a people who will produce fruit, which he's talking to the Gentiles. Again, for clarity, many Jewish people came to know Jesus as their Savior. On the day Peter preached on Pentecost, 3,000 devout Jewish men gave their lives to Jesus. So I don't want to set some kind of picture that all the Jews rejected this. They did not. Then it goes on to say, anyone who falls on this stone, he's just talked about this cornerstone, the stone that was rejected. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The stone is obviously Jesus in the story. So when we fall upon the stone, Jesus, you'll be broken. If the stone falls on you, you'll be crushed. Now, most scholars look at both of those things as negative. If you want to study it out and look it up, they will say this. Hey, if you fall on the stone, and they, they think of falling on the stone as you're, you're actively rejecting it, you're actively teaching against it, you're actively denying it, you're acti actively uh, mocking uh, Jesus and the faith, 
and you'll be broken if you do that because that's like hitting your head against a brick wall. You, it will break you. But if one day you stand before the Lord Jesus and you've rejected him all of your life, even though you may not be, you know, falling on the stone, there's another way that's negative, and that's just you just ignore him. You say, he doesn't mean anything to me. He's not worthy of my thoughts. He's not worthy of my actions. He's not worthy of my lifestyle. In fact, I don't even care to think about him. I'm just going to ignore and do life as if he doesn't even exist. Then one day you'll stand before him, and the weight of his presence and glory will crush you. Most scholars see both those things as, as negative. Now, I don't disagree with the scholars, but I do want to, to present something to you for your consideration. I know what I'm going to teach is accurate from Scripture. Now, maybe you'll say, well, I don't think that Scripture fits this. But here's what I see. I see two things going on. If you fall on the stone, you'll be broken. If the stone falls on you, you'll be crushed. I, I just want to present this as a possibility. What if we fall on the rock, the Bible says the rock Christ Jesus, as an act of our will in humble submission and worship to, to his lordship? I think there's a, even if this verse doesn't mean that, something we should do, we should humbly submit ourselves to his lordship. And I will promise you this from experience, it will break you. Now, it will break you in a good way, but it will break you. In the Bible days, there were often things that... Well, remember the lady that came and broke this alabaster jar and it had embalming oil and perfume in it and put it on Jesus' feet and poured it over his head and did all that? That was a big deal. Uh, Judas was upset and said, that should have been sold, the money given to the poor, because that was worth a year's wages. Except the scripture goes on to say Judas wasn't concerned about the poor. He was a thief. He wanted to sell that and get some of that money. And that was a year's wages that she broke that alabaster jar. I read a story one time. These alabaster jars are very beautiful. And, but the ointment inside the jar was what it was really the most valuable thing. Remember that ointment and oil was worth a year's wages. Not just the alabaster jar, but the oil and ointment in there. And they said oftentimes people, when it came time to actually use it, they hated to break the beautiful vase. They hated to bust up that beautiful alabaster box. And so sometimes they'd save the box and go buy some lesser embalming oils and put it on the people. There's a story to be learned in that because we are that alabaster box. We may look good and we may be beautiful. We may not want to be broken. But really what's valuable is not the box, it's the ointment. It's the oil, it's the anointing, it's the presence of the Lord. That's what's so valuable. And if we would throw ourselves on Jesus, allow him to break us in a good way, I believe what's of real value will begin to pour out. What really matters is what's on the inside, and God's always wanting to transform that. But there's always a something in the story of Jesus. There's always death and life mingled together. Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. Was he literally crucified with Christ? No. But in a spiritual dimension, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But the life I do live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. In talking about baptism into Christ, it says we're buried with him in baptism and we're raised to newness of life. We die to self. We die to all of our habits and sin and we rise anew in Christ. There's always this dying to self, being broken in self, but yet having new life in Jesus. 
So Peter picks up on the same passage Jesus was talking about in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. He says, for in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Every time I've ever seen this in the scripture, it's always referring to the Messiah, the Savior, to Jesus. He's the cornerstone. Now, cornerstones, and I'm not a builder, so I don't know if this is a big deal today, but I know that in building construction in bygone years, the cornerstone was the critical stone that had to be laid perfectly that everything else went off of. It was the most important stone. And so the imagery there, because God loves imagery. If Jesus is the cornerstone, I'm going to build my life on him. And if I build my life on him, then everything should be square and strong and right and good. If I don't build it on him, then things can be askew and not go well. So here he says, this chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is what? Precious. Jesus is precious. That's why when I hear somebody talking ugly about Jesus, it hurts my heart. Because he's precious to me. He's precious to me. And here it says, but to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected, they've rejected that stone, has become the cornerstone. Let me explain something to you. It didn't change who Jesus was, whether we accept him or reject him. He's still the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected, guess what, has still become the cornerstone. Still is. But the cornerstone to those who reject Jesus and don't believe upon him is a stone that makes them stumble, a rock that makes them fall, Other translations say Jesus becomes a stone of offense. I'll tell you what. If you want to love the the remodeled Jesus of any culture, most people won't really care about that. But if if you want to serve and love and talk about the Jesus of the Scripture, you will find people don't like that. Because they'll say, well, Jesus didn't. And they're telling you what Jesus did or didn't do based upon their feelings, not based upon scripture. I run into this all the time talking with people. Well, Jesus Jesus never judged. He, he, he never condemned. He never uh, told people they were wrong. He never... Uh, have you read your Bible? He was always nice and sweet and kind. Well, he looked at religious leaders and he said to them, you're of your father the devil. That's not so kind. That wouldn't make me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside if he would say that. He told the rich young ruler, here's the way it is. Here's the way it's going to work. And the Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him. But he, the rich young ruler turned down his offer, who was a good guy, according to the scripture, but he turned down his offer because something held his heart, and that was his wealth. And it says he went away sad because he had great wealth. He couldn't give up any wealth to go after God. And it saddened Jesus, but he didn't give him a half-price sale. He said, this is what it takes. A stone that causes people to stumble, rock that makes them fall, or a stone of offense, they stumble because they disobey the message, was also what they were destined for. Jesus is a two-edged sword. Jesus is both a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling or a stone of offense. Jesus is both conflict at times, and peace at times. 
Now, there's always great peace when how wonderful and beautiful it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. There's peace in that. You know, everybody gets together. You look at Darlene's family, and you got a gazillion people gathering. They all love Jesus. There's a beautiful, sweet peace and joy there. You look at our buddy's family that came along where he's the only one that loves Jesus. There'll be peace and unity as long as he doesn't say anything about Jesus. But as soon as he says something about Jesus, there will be conflict. But Jesus does ultimately always want to move us towards peace because he really is the Prince of Peace. So Jesus and the Word of God. By the way, Jesus is often called the Word in John and in other places in the Scripture, the Word. Jesus and the Word of God are solid and secure. Jesus is from everlasting to everlasting. Thy word, O Lord, is forever settled in heaven. It doesn't change. I read a story about the days before cars and modern machinery. If you can picture in your mind the horse and buggy days, the dirt roads, the little one street you know, you ever watch Gunsmoke or something like that? You picture, picture a little western town like that. That's the era I'm talking about. And this dad, for the first time, was bringing his young son, five or six years old, into town. You know, people were farmers back then. He had a farm and a ranch, and he was bringing him into town. It's the first time. This is exciting. He'd never seen a town. Think, think about that. Isn't that interesting? He'd never seen a town. And so he walks in this little town, And he hears this clang, clang, clang. And little kid goes, what is that? that That's the blacksmith. The blacksmith forges all kinds of things out of metal. And uh, he makes parts for carriages and wagons and wagon wheels and, and plows and tools and horseshoes. And he said, follow me, we'll go take a look. And so he walks over there. And he sees this huge guy with this huge hammer smashing it down on an anvil and just hitting and hitting. With such force, it looked like he was going to chop down a tree. And with every strike of that hammer on that metal on that anvil, the little kid would just kind of wince because it was so powerful. Finally, the blacksmith took a break, wiped his brow, looked up and saw him standing in the doorway. And the little boy was just mesmerized by that hammer and by that anvil. And finally says, hey, mister, aren't you afraid you're going to break that thing? Pointing at the anvil. And the blacksmith said, son, he said, that anvil's over 100 years old. It's broken many hammers, but it's never broke. I thought about that, and I thought about Jesus. I thought about the gospel message. I thought about the word of God. You know, a lot of people... I preached a lot of sermons against it. A lot of people have written a lot of books, made a lot of speeches, made a lot of claims against Jesus, against the word, against the message of salvation. Every one of them broke their hammer, pounding against that anvil. There was a guy named Thomas Paine around the era of our founding fathers, and he wrote a book called The Age of Reason. Thomas Paine was an interesting guy. Thomas Paine believed there was a God. Thomas Paine believed that God put things in motion, but he did not believe in any kind of religion. He said his church was his reasoning, his mind. 
And he did not believe, in fairness, not did he just not reject Christianity, he rejected any kind of religion, any kind of religious material, anything. He rejected it completely. And he was so hopeful that finally we had risen to a point in history where we could put away all the fairy tales of religion, the Bible, Jesus, and just use our minds. And so he wrote a book called The Age of Reason, which rails against the Bible and religions in general and Christianity and Jesus and all of that. And in fairness, I, I found the most, the highest sales projection that could be, they, they varied, but I picked the highest one. Thomas Paine sold 500,000 copies of his book, or it's sold since it was written. Now, that's pretty impressive. I mean, if I wrote a book and 500,000 people, I, I'd think I was a rock star, you know, bought my book. But I started thinking, I thought, out of curiosity, I wonder how many Bibles have sold. Because people like Thomas Paine, and they still exist today, believe that one day, that Bible will be nothing but a rusty, dusty old relic sitting on a library shelf somewhere covered in dust that people have forgotten about. Probably very few of you here have read Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason, but I bet you've read the Bible, at least some of it. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the Bible has sold somewhere between five and seven billion. Five to seven billion copies. Now, I'll be with the Bible like I was with Thomas Paine. We'll pick the seven billion mark. I don't know if you ever think about a billion. A billion is a thousand millions. Seven thousand million Bibles have been sold since it was first produced. Isn't that interesting? That old anvil just keeps handling the hammer over and over and over. The gospel message is still being preached. Today on planet Earth, thousands and thousands of people will give their lives to Jesus. Today on planet Earth, billions will gather in some religious setting to worship Jesus. Interesting. It just keeps moving forward. There's a... I know you might have been thinking along the way, this is a horrible Christmas message. <laughs> I wanted to hear something more light and fluffy. Well, let's get... It's not really light and fluffy, but let's get some really good news. That sword that cuts both ways, it does cause conflict and division at times, but it also brings peace and eternal life. And Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah 9, 1 through 5, which is a great set of Christmas verses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee. Remember, Jesus was called a Galilean. He will honor Galilee by the nations, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Amen. When Jesus broke into the world, 
a great light dawned. And the light keeps shining, and the light keeps pushing back darkness, and the light keeps winning. I, I want to say this because you will hear lies even from, from uh, well-meaning preachers who say, Christianity's done for, I don't know what we're going to do, everything's on decline. Our God's never on decline. The kingdom's never on decline. The kingdom keeps pushing forward and keeps going forward and keeps going forward. Are there things we need to deal with? Are there problems? Sure. And there always has been. I mean, they used to, like, crucify you for knowing Jesus. They used to burn you at stakes. They used to, history says Nero would light his parties with Christians torching and burning. So there's always been, I call that a problem. But I'll tell you what, the kingdom keeps advancing. China explodes as a church as you possibly might get thrown in prison or who knows what might happen to you. And the church just keeps advancing. The people in darkness have seen a great light. So here's our focus for the week. Let's spend time every day allowing Jesus to reshape us as we humbly submit to his kingship. You say, how am I going to do that? I don't know. You're intelligent, creative people. Maybe it's a little special time in prayer. Maybe it's a little Advent devotional. Maybe it's a little Bible study. Maybe it's just reflecting on the greatness of God. Maybe you, you need to look up at a, a starry sky or a beautiful sunset or a wonderful sunrise. Maybe as family gathers, you need to think about how much you love one another. And I don't know, there's a thousand different things that can make you just look up to heaven and say, Lord Jesus, thank you. I want you to reshape me and mold me. I want to lay, I humbly throw myself on the rock. Change me into your image. I will tell you this. Jesus isn't safe, but he's good. Jesus isn't safe. He's the lion, as Mr. Beaver said. He is the king of the beasts. Not one of them. He is the lion, the king. And he's not safe, but he's good, and he is king. And everything he does for us is designed for our good. James tells us that, the brother of Jesus, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Everything that happens in this broken world isn't good. Everything that happens that the enemy might conjure up isn't good. But I will tell you this, all things work together for the good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So let's pray together.